0: Welcome to Making and Breaking Social Policy, a podcast about how we respond to big social issues and what this means for social and community practice. My name is Ben Lohmeyer, and I'm a lecturer and researcher in social work at Flinders University. My special guest for today is Isabel Hermes. Isabel is a PhD candidate here at Flinders University and a student member of Social of the Social Work Innovation Living Space, or SWIRLs. She has a practice background in social work, having worked previously as a drug and alcohol counsellor with homeless, criminalised, and at-risk young people. She also worked as a drug diversion clinician, working with adults caught with minor drug possession as a way to divert them from entering or re-entering the criminal legal system. Her PhD focuses on the engagement of parents with support services uh, and with their child protection services when they are at risk of or experience child removal. Specifically, she is interested in the context and processes that support parents to Engage with supports in a way that is self determined. She's also been teaching in the social work program in topics that focus on understanding addictions. Isabel is joining me today uh, to talk about the Australian drug policy and its impacts on its users seeking help. So, we recognize that Flinders social work operates primarily on the traditional lands and waters of Ghana peoples, and we pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. We acknowledge their sovereignty, was never ceded, and their continued responsibility to care for country. Isabel, Thank you so much for joining me today for a chat about Australian drug policy and its impacts on users seeking help. To get us started, tell us a little bit about your practice background, your research that you're doing now in your PhD, and your teaching, which is where this conversation kind of started.
1: Yeah, cool. Thanks for having me. Um, So my practice background is in social work um, and I guess I work predominantly as a drug and alcohol counsellor. So I work doing um, one-on-one work predominantly with young people um, aged 12 to 25, but I also um, worked as a drug diversion um, clinician with adults. Um, So for um, people who had been caught using substances um, and who were sent to diversionary um, kind of brief intervention services rather than the court system. Um, my research, so I've come back um, and I'm doing a PhD um, and I'm looking at um, the engagement of parents with services and with child protection when they're at risk of having their children removed. Wow. Um And my teaching, (laughs) Um, so I'm tutoring in a a few topics, but um, the one I guess very relevant for today um, is a topic called understanding addiction. So um, thinking about um, addiction from, I guess, a a personal kind of practice level, but then also um, the different way that we respond from policy levels um, as well.
0: Fantastic, so I can see how your practice experience really feeds into that teaching and that topic um, this, this, uh, idea for this conversation came out of, cause we are in the same tutorial room and you're in the, the room after me. So it's yeah. like, hey, what do you, you teach at this time? Let's have a chat about that, which is really cool. But you just told me before we started that you do your PhD and the masters at the same time. Is that right?
1: I am. Yes.
0: That seems madness.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, I am doing a PhD in social psychology and I'm doing a master's in psychology um as a, yeah as a combined program so um learning about clinical practice doing some placements and then doing research alongside it as well
0: um incredible it, yeah so it's, it's
1: a it's a lot but it seems cool to be able to um do practice and research kind of at the same time
0: yeah, yeah definitely that's a really nice uh yeah, nexus isn't it? the practice and research coming together and forming each other. I'm sure you learn something in one place that informs the other and back and forth. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. When, you, when you're teaching a topic like understanding addictions, what are you hoping students ultimately walk away from a topic like that mm. with? You know, these are often master's social work students, so they're kind of going into – practice or they have some experience as well, they're coming with a little bit of that. What do you, what's not the big takeaway that you hope for?
1: I guess with the topic of addiction, um, I feel like there's a lot of myths, um, a lot of stigmas, a lot of judgments. So kind of trying to dispel them. um, You know, I think that um, we've learnt a lot from, you know, media representations, um, the way that we kind of think about the issue of addiction. Um, And so I guess my, I guess what I, what I wanna, want students to take away from that is a bit more of a critical lens um, and to be able to kind of dissect that a little bit more. So um, yeah, to, I guess, um, try and see past the stigma um, so that hopefully when um, we're in social work settings or other settings and working with people who experience addiction, um, that we're coming from a less judgmental, more understanding kind of um, position.
0: Absolutely makes sense. And I really love that emphasis for the focus or, or way that we do analysis in my social policy topic because we look at things like, you know, what are the dominant discourses around this social issue uh, and how do they create the problem or, you know, make us think about the problem in a particular way. So things like stigma and you know, a lot of negative assumptions, they're not. Only just present in media, but also often in policy as well. And so we can kind of see those and think about perhaps how else we could be, you know, tackling a problem. So we wanted to talk a little bit about one of the policies in Australia around drugs. And so there is a national drug strategy in Australia. The the time frame for it was it was created in 2017. It's going through to 2026. So. Oh, yeah, what are we, a little over halfway through that. Um, it's described as a 10-year framework that aims to reduce and prevent the harmful effects of alcohol drugs, uh, sorry, alcohol, tobacco and other drugs. So obviously there's a lot in a national policy like this. It's it's pretty big. Uh, but if you were to describe core principles or the main approach of this policy, what would you say that is?
1: Yeah, well, I guess just thinking about the aim for a minute, I think it's interesting because... Um, that has the language of that has changed over time in previous policies. So, in this policy, it's focusing on the harmful effects of alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs, and that can be distinguished from previous policies. That that speaks to the issue of drugs more broadly. Gotcha. Um, so that that kind of you know how we view that problem has changed. To it's not necessarily drug use per se that's the problem, mm. um, but it's the harmful effects that come from that. Okay. Um, so the aim is kind of trying to target. Um, that, which I think is is interesting, um, you know, from the get go when we think about kind of the aim. Yeah. Um, and 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 so I guess um, in this policy document, there's there's a focus on three pillars um, of an overall approach of harm reduction. So there's one pillar of demand reduction, um, one pillar of supply reduction, and one pillar of um, harm reduction. So mm-hmm. when we're thinking about demand reduction, that's that's kind of anything that is going to reduce the demand or the use of of alcohol and other drugs. Um, So that could be treatment options. Um, It could be things like um, information campaigns. Um, It could be things like uh, thinking about the social determinants of of drug and alcohol use Mm -hmm. um, and tackling them. So it could be even things like community development programs, creating youth hubs, um, cultural centre, anything that, that kind of, um, addresses that kind of underlying cause yep. um, of, of drug use and addiction, kind of comes under that demand reduction pillar. Mm-hmm. Um, then when we think about supply reduction, that that's kind of stopping the supply of drugs. So for legal drugs, um, that's things like age limits on drinking, it's things like um, plain packaging um, on cigarettes um, and age limits on them too. Um, for pharmaceutical drugs, it's things like, um, you know, um, changes to the way that we can access prescription opioids um, and all those kinds of things. Um, for illicit drugs, that's kind of where our law enforcement stuff comes in. So um, stopping their supply of drugs into the country, um, drug busts. Um, it, also, if we think about um, things like the establishment of dry communities, um, the basics card, I think, puts you under um, supply reduction. So things that kind of stop the and limit the supply of drugs.
0: So they're the ones we probably see the most in the media, right? They're the ones we hear about, the drug busts and the the, the um, you know, police actions to just try and stop those illicit drugs coming into the country. Yes, yeah. Yep.
1: Kind of where our more punitive, um, I guess, responses could may sit. Yeah, gotcha, okay. Um, as well. Um, and then we have harm reduction. So I guess the overall idea of harm reduction is that people will continue to use drugs um, and we need to, to do what we can to... Um, reduce the harms associated with that. So things like clean needle programs, um, things like pill testing at festivals, although we don't have that, but but that would sit under there. So that that's an example. Um, uh, to things like making venues supply water for free when people are drinking, um, safe injecting rooms that we have in Victoria and New South Wales, um, anything that... Um, kind of comes from this underlying assumption that people will continue to use, um, and we're trying to do what we can to stop the harms associated with that, rather than stop the use itself, mm. kind of sits under harm reduction.
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, that sounds like a fairly well-rounded kind of approach. You know, they've got three different parts to it, the demand, and supply, and then the, the harm component of it. Um, it. The thing I'm noticing, though, that's kind of not present there is some of the stuff that you were talking about as a key takeaway from the topic you were teaching. There's no conversation there necessarily about stigma or challenging some of our assumptions around drugs. Is that fair to say, or is that somewhere else in the policy?
1: Um, it's probably yeah, it's probably fair to say. I mean, I mean, some of that stuff could sit within. Um, I guess harm reduction services do, do a fair bit in terms of trying to reduce stigma. Um, but I think that what what can happen is when we see, um, uh, you know, kind of information campaigns um, that, that, you know, we think, well, will provide information to the public around the harms of drug use um, as a way to kind of reduce demand, um, we can kind of see that that can sometimes backfire and create a lot of stigma. So um, certain kind of marketing campaigns for certain drugs. Um, yeah, I think in the way that they're kind of put together on market, it can increase stigma. Um, but I mean, I haven't looked through the whole document, but I don't think that there's, that, that there's a big focus on stigma reduction. Sure. No.
0: Yeah, no yeah. Worries. Well, that makes sense. Uh, but you know those. It's interesting when you were describing you were talking about, say, harm reduction having an assumption that people will continue to use. So there are there are assumptions in the way that this uh, policy approaches the problem of drug use or the social issue of, of drug use. Mm-hmm. Are there other ways to think about it? Can you help us see the assumptions in this one by giving us a different contrasting way of of thinking about this social issue?
1: sure about the questions of assumptions, but there is, I guess, a growing call at the moment um, to say that, um, I guess, our our main approach, um, which is, I mean, not our main approach, but but the criminalisation of drug use um, that kind of sits with outside of this policy as, as, you know, embedded within our legislation, um, is somewhat at odds with the focus now or the aim of this um, policy, which is the overall reduction of harms associated with drug and alcohol use. Um, So uh, I guess, you know, when we think about some of those policies that sit within that supply reduction pillar, um, that they are perhaps somewhat at odds with harm reduction um, in the sense that perhaps they do they can Discriminate. They they can stigmatize. Um, and when when we're thinking about the effect of criminalization overall, um, that kind of can impede some of those other things. Um, you know, when we think about demand reduction, what are the things that, um, you know, what are some of the social determinants to drug use or the social determinants to addiction? Um, if we think about things like isolation, exclusion, um, can actually increase some of those factors. Um.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so in some senses, it sounds like you know, each of these different pillars has assumptions within them, but if you assume that people will continue to use drugs, then looking at it from a demand and supply kind of approach and, and reducing those, because you're assuming, again, like that there are harms associated with uh, those drug use, then, then that I mean, seems like a logical approach. But if you, you mentioned decriminalisation, you know, mm-hmm. that, that seems like a completely different set of assumptions about drugs you know do, does there always have harms associated with them what are those harms uh, how do we reduce or or um, you know solve or rethink about that problem differently rather than just looking at demand and supply so can you tell us a little bit more about you know what is the approach of decriminalization what what's the assumptions or, or way of thinking about the problem of drugs if we wanted to take it from a decriminalization perspective
1: yeah well I think that there's a couple of um interesting, strong arguments for and against. So I guess the argument for um, decriminalisation um, is that um, it will then reduce the harms associated with criminalization. So if we understand that, um, you know, um, particularly for people who experience addiction, um, there's not many people who um you know, something being illegal will be uh, a factor that will kind of pull somebody out of an addiction. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use, use drugs because they're illegal, even though I'm kind of experiencing this long standing addiction. Um, but that, um, on the contrary, there can be a lot of harms associated with criminalization. And, and those harms can particularly affect um, communities that are over policed and communities of color and disadvantaged communities. Um, and basically, that is that. Um, things like criminal records, things like incarceration, um, exclude people from things like employment, housing, and actually the things that people need to kind of overcome um, addiction. If we think about some of those determinants being things like exclusion, um, you know, and perhaps some of the things that support people out of addiction being, um, you know, meaningful things to to do with um, time, um, connection to community, um, and connection to others around them. So that's kind of the, I guess, when we're thinking about the argument for decriminalisation is that it will reduce the harms um, associated with contact with the criminal justice system, criminal records and all of those other things. Um, And I guess that most of that argument um, doesn't just argue for decriminalisation, but it also argues for taking the resources spent on law enforcement and investing them into treatment options. Gotcha. Um, and we've seen that happen in countries. So Portugal um, decriminalised drug use quite a while ago, um, invested a lot of money in treatment options um, and access to treatment increased um, and drug use didn't. So, so that's the argument for. Um, the argument against, I think, is more of a moral um, argument. And it's basically this argument that if we decriminalise drugs, we will send a message that using drugs is okay. Um, And we can't do that. We need to have this zero tolerance approach. Um, We need to, well, I I guess we need to send a message that this isn't okay. And if we decriminalise something, then we're saying that it's okay, we're saying that we'll tolerate this behaviour and that will lead to more drug use.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, Yeah. okay. So part of the assumption in that um, criminalisation argument, you know, to to keep it criminalised, is that that is a deterrent, right, that it, it deters people from... From uh, using it but your original point was saying well actually for somebody who's addicted that's not a big deterrent that's Mm -hmm. not actually something that will prevent them from from using so in that case that argument seems to fall down a bit or at least shows the different ways of thinking about this as a problem and what's going to support the other part i found really interesting that you're saying is yeah the 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 outcome of criminalizing is that there's a whole bunch of impacts which make it harder for somebody to to seek help and support. So part of the impact, and in my topic, and we were talking about uh, the impact of uh, policy problem representations. We talked about the lived effects of that problem representation, and it sounds like a lived effect of the criminalisation of drugs, is that people find it harder to seek support because there's a whole bunch of consequences for them kind of down the line. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really interesting. So there's this other way of, we've got this, current model, which is still focused or at least part of the, the, the process is a criminalisation um, uh, of drugs. And then you, as a result of that, we have this demand reduction, supply reduction kind of approach and, and some acknowledgement of, of the harms as well. And you're suggesting there's another way of thinking about it, which is looking at decriminalisation. But there was something else you were saying uh, before we started talking as well about these kind of stages to decriminalisation. Because when, when you hear decriminalisation, it sounds like it's just going to be a free-for-all, you know, everyone can do whatever they want. But you're saying actually there's a few stages to it and it's important, I think, to understand how that works a little bit.
1: Yeah. So um, when we're talking about decriminalisation, that that's distinct from legalising something. Um, so there are things that are decriminalised and, um, that perhaps you might get a fine for, um, you know, if I ride around on my bicycle without a helmet um, or without lights, you know, I can be stopped and I can get a fine for that. Um, but so, so that, that is not criminalised, um, but it still bears some kind of consequence. Um, but what, what doesn't happen is it doesn't go on my criminal record. Um, I don't have to attend court. There's no risk of me being incarcerated. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about decriminalisation. So, um, for example, cannabis is decriminalised in South Australia. Um, if you get caught with cannabis on your person, um, you just get a fine. Um, gotcha. So you don't get a criminal record for that. And and that, I mean, there's limits to that. If you get caught with a quantity that suggests that you're trafficking, um, then that is still criminalised. Um, if you're growing and supplying, that is still criminalised. So the calls for decriminalisation kind of don't take away that aspect of it. Gotcha, okay. Um, but, but so that's... Decriminalisation, so, um, and then there's legalisation, which means that it's something something becomes legal. So, um, you know, alcohol is legal. Um, we have regulatory systems that monitor the the sale of um, alcohol, um, and so that's kind of the next step. And some people argue for that um, in terms of illicit drugs as well. But I think probably the um, you know what we're seeing in terms of um, inquiries into this now and kind of peak bodies is calls for decriminalisation rather than legalisation.
0: Gotcha. Okay, so we've got decriminalisation where there's still a consequence, uh, but uh, there's not the ongoing legal uh, record of that. Then mm-hmm. there's uh, legalisation and then you start talking about regulation as well. And there are some places around the world um so I think Canada at the moment is there's regulation happening of some drugs like marijuana, et cetera, as well. And yeah. So what's the argument for that? Why would we start regulating these drugs?
1: Um, I guess the argument for that is more control over the substance. Um, I think is one of the strong arguments for that um, so that then we can really start to, and once you start to regulate something, then then you can think about, um, you know, the way that we market it and putting kind of rules and guidelines around that. So if you think about the way that we market, I'm um, sorry, we regulate alcohol, um, you know, there are certain, or, or tobacco even, you know, we can say, well, um, yes, this is, it, it's legal, but we have to have, you um, you know, you can't, we have to have packages that kind of speak to the harms. It has to be behind a screen so that um, people can't see it. Um, so so I guess it gives more control over the way that that substance is managed. Um, I guess it's, it's kind of a big argument for why we would
0: legalise and then
1: regulate something.
0: Whereas if we have something that's criminalised, then we have, you know, it's it, people shouldn't be using it, but that almost drives some of that uh regulation of the quantity and quality, et cetera, underground and becomes completely unregulated really in a way, doesn't
1: it? Absolutely. And that's, I guess, another argument for decriminalisation is that that drugs are being made more potent. Um, They're also being made, um, I guess, with different, um, you know, to evade testing um, because they're criminalised. So um, when As I guess another kind of harmful effect of criminalisation is that there are higher risks of overdose, higher risks of other drug-related harms because of the way that drugs are being manufactured to evade uh, detection and law enforcement and that kind of thing. Yeah, great.
0: Thank you. So I think we've mentioned Canada and Portugal. Are there any other examples around the world that we should be looking at as ways, different ways to approach this problem?
1: Well, Portugal's quite interesting because it happened It happened quite a while ago now um, and Portugal kind of had, had some of the highest rates of um, heroin use in Europe um, and overdose-related deaths and, and drug-related harms. Um, and so they kind of came to this point of, you know, we need to do something drastic and back then it was something that um, was... Um, you know, it was a big deal.
0: Mm, yeah, <laughs> uh, it was very like a,
1: bold, wow. um, and so they did. They decriminalized all illicit drugs. Wow. Um, and so there's been quite a lot of study on this now because it, you know, it's, it's mm. been going on for a while. Um, and what they did find um, is that that, I guess importantly, what Portugal did as well is that they took all of the money that they spent on law enforcement and they put it into treatment. So they had programs. Um, for example where the government would pay part of the wage for people who were experiencing addiction wow. to get back into employment wow so it was done alongside um, you know investment in other um, you know treatment treatment options mm. um, but but there's no there's no Big calls, really, to go back um, yeah, because okay. what they've seen is that um, drug-related harm, so um, rates of overdoses, rates of HIV and other bloodborne infections, have gone down dramatically. Wow. Um, treatment has gone up, so so people's engagement in treatment has gone up, um, and rates of drug use has have maintained pretty stable. Okay, um, yeah, so so that was, I think, kind of like the the first country to do this, um, the state of Oregon in the last uh, American election. Um, decriminalised or drug use and they're yeah, kind of okay. running that as a pilot. Um, but closer to home and very interestingly, the ACT government announced um, only a couple of weeks ago, actually, they passed legislation to decriminalise um, illicit drug use in that state, sorry, well, not state, territory. <laughs> um, so that should come into effect in 2023. Um, uh-huh. And and that's, that's massive. And I think when you think about, um, I guess, the narrative and our understanding of of, of drugs and criminalisation, and it seems so embedded, um, I think perhaps it might come as a big surprise to a lot of people that that's actually happening in, in um, a territory in Australia.
0: It came as a surprise to me. Yeah. You mentioned it just before we started talking. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get to this part of the conversation. Yeah, that, that's a really surprising thing given the, the narrative and the way that we think about drugs in Australia.
1: So yeah. it
0: will be interesting to watch this space. Oh, wow. Okay. So we've talked about a few different bits and pieces, but I wanted to get, come back to almost where we started, which was your research and what you're doing now. Because from what I understand, this issue of criminalization has some implications for the kinds of research that you're doing now. Um, there's a connection of sorts. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I think from memory, it also connects a bit to your practice experience too.
1: Yeah, so I guess it, it connects to my research in in the sense that so I'm looking at kind of what the barriers are to, to people accessing support. Um, so, um, you know, my focus is on parents who are at risk of child removal or, or who have experienced that, um, for which, um, you know, issues of drug and alcohol use and addiction um, are, are very high. Mm. Um I guess overall, when we're speaking broadly, um, criminalisation is a barrier to people seeking support and um, that's been cited in in a fair bit of research um, and also kind of as I was just speaking about, um, in places where we have decriminalised or where they have decriminalised, we can kind of see that that barrier is reduced a bit to people kind of accessing treatment and support. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's through, I guess, um, you know, uh, more kind of targeted approaches to funding treatment um, more in that space. But I think that there's also a role of, um, you know, the effect of stigma um, of judgment and that that kind of thing as well that kind of comes along with criminalization and that kind of moralisation of um, mm-hmm. drug use. So that's kind of broadly... Um, I guess implicated in my research. Um, for me, looking at um, I guess the particular barriers that that parents face, um, you know, a more salient kind of barrier, I guess, is is fear of removal, and that's gonna that's gonna stick around regardless of whether or not um, drug use is decriminalized. But I can think of. Um, I guess, an argument where, sorry, an example where we take, or where they take a very punitive response um, to women who use drugs during pregnancy, which is some states in America, um, where that issue is criminalised. So Mm -hmm. again, it's this idea that if we criminalise something, it will act as a deterrent. Um, If we criminalise something, we're sending a message that this isn't okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And in those states, um, you know, the criminalisation of drug use during pregnancy is is a huge barrier mm-hmm. um, to women accessing support because if they access support, they can be um, incarcerated yeah, wow. um, for using during pregnancy. So, um, and, and there's kind of the lowest rates of treatment um, uptake in those places. So we can kind of see this kind of idea that if we criminalise something, um, we're kind of sending this message, but that actually what happens is that um, it, it's not enough of a deterrent because there's many other deterrents, um, you know, th- the main one being that um, for the majority of, of parents who use drugs, um, perhaps you know, they don't want to be in that predicament. They want the best for their children. Um, and we can understand addiction as something that is quite challenging to kind of overcome. Um, so it's not necessarily about them needing to be a deterrent per se, but actually they're needing to be avenues for support.
0: Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense and um, one of the things I'm thinking about as you were talking was this shift in the, the conversation from talking about drugs to talking about addiction like that mm. really reframes the conversation I think because because addiction is something that we can understand as problematic but in needing of support yeah. whereas drugs has all this stigma and all the things that we've talked about that go along with uh, that that make it sound immediately harmful in a way that probably prevents us from thinking about uh, offering people support. And that, that's a really interesting shift, I think. One of the things that this uh, podcast is mean, called Making and Breaking um, Social Policy is inviting us to think about the way that policy has that relationship with practice. And from what you were just telling us about here, how there are opportunities to support uh, and do practice in ways that are, um, in line with social work values and, and offer offering really ways to do it that wouldn't be there if it's criminalised. You know, if we criminalise drugs and we just can't offer that support. Mm. So that's like a, a making or breaking of that opportunity to do practice, if that makes sense.
1: I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think also it comes down to, um, um, I guess, the principles of criminalisation and how that feeds into practice. So um, this idea, I guess, that... Um, we need to um, deter people out of um, their use or out of their addiction, Um, that we need to, um, you know, if we think about criminalisation more generally, um, punish or have some kind of punitive response um, that involves a level of exclusion, you know, that will exclude. And and we kind of see that play out in the way that people respond to, you know, people in their lives and loved ones who experience addiction, you know, this Mm -hmm. kind of notion that, um, you know, people need to hit rock bottom. We need to just cut them out um, until they overcome, um, you know, and, and that's kind of, I think, adopting the, um, I guess, the principles of criminalization in that way and, and kind of taking that into perhaps our practice or into our everyday lives. Um, and we can kind of also see that play out in practice um, that, you know, some services ask for a complete abstinence approach. Um, You know, we run random drug tests on people. Um, We have this very kind of investigative nature almost of thinking about it, Mm. Um, you know, versus if we take, I guess, the principles of decriminalisation, what does that mean? Um, Not only to, you know, on that broad policy level, but what does that mean in terms of the way that we relate to one another, Um, the principles of perhaps bringing people closer, of connecting them, um, you know, yeah, um, providing support. Um, you know, having a harm harm reduction approach within our services that says, um, you know, we understand that that you might keep using and we'll still be here. Um, so it's kind of, I think it permeates, you know, the way that we see this issue and the way that we re- respond on a personal level, on a professional level, um, and then, yeah, on a policy level as well.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, what a great summary. I don't think we can do a better job than that. It literally creates opportunities physically to interact with people and also the discourses and ideas shape our practice as well. That's yeah. fantastic. Thank you so much for the conversation. You've really given us a great illustration of these two different approaches to understanding the social issue of drug use and addiction. Um, before we finish up, chance for a, a shameless self-promotion If people were interested in what you're doing and your research how would they find you how would they connect with you <laughs>
1: um, i don't have too much to promote just yet um i'm still very i'm i'm new to being a researcher so um
0: but we look forward to eagerly hearing more about what you're doing it sounds fantastic so can we find you on the internet somewhere on a flinders website
1: um i'm on twitter that's um Um, I probably am on the Flinders website. It perhaps just has my name and email address. Great.
0: No worries. (laughs) Well, if you're happy, I might find some of those links and connect them to the podcast. We'll put them in the show notes. But thank you so much for coming along and sharing all your insights in this space. It's been a really great conversation. Thanks for having me. This episode was edited by Ryan Manhire, music by Anthem of Rain, sourced from the freemusicarchive.org. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Ben. If you like the podcast, please like, share, comment, and do all the things.